Hello Blazers, welcome to episode 26 of UAB Green and Told. Original air date, Monday, August 17th, 2020. Through UAB Green and Told, we are able to sit down with members of the UAB family and share their stories. I'm Greg Berry, Assistant Director in the UAB Office of Alumni Affairs. This week, we will share the inspirational story of Stephen Moore. It's a story two decades old, and as Stephen tells us, it's a moment in history he will never forget. Definitely a day that, that changed my life, changed a lot of different things. I think uh, ultimately led to who I am today as a person and, and defined my character further. In a fight to stay alive, Stephen was raced to UAB Hospital from two hours away. 85 miles per hour, 95, 105, and law enforcement had literally in, created a rolling roadblock to allow that ambulance to really just never slow down. Stephen was saved, and now, two decades later, his story includes a message of perseverance. You can be completely derailed from what you thought your path was going to be in life to what it is now because of this, and how do you navigate that, and how do you, how do you overcome that? Stephen Moore will tell you that he's from Russellville, Alabama. For the most part, his family's farm is far from anywhere. Stephen was an all-American kid. He wasn't the best at the things he did, but he strived to be in the top 5% every time. Stephen was third in his high school class. He played football, basketball, and planned to play baseball in college. He thought he knew what path he was on, but that changed one day in the summer of 1999. I just wanted to be good at everything that I did. Uh, I, I think a lot of times today, you hear the term jack of all trades and, and it can be used in a negative connotation. And I, I think I'm probably that. I probably, I'm not the top 1% in anything, but I believe I can be the top five or 10 in everything. And so I think I just wanted to be good at, at everything and succeed. And uh, I'm definitely a people pleaser. So I wanted to please those individuals who, my parents obviously, my family, my coaches, my teachers, I wanted to do right by them. And so that encouraged me as I would do that and they would provide that positive feedback for me to say, oh man, I wanna do more of that, right? And so I think those things just over time just continue to to add up, um, you know, as you, as you grow up, go through high school and, and college, obviously. When you were playing baseball in high school, you were good enough to get looks from colleges. Who was looking at you going into the junior, senior seasons? Uh, it was definitely Division Two colleges. So Montevallo, UAH. Uh, I think, you know, my size probably prohibited a lot of the Division One type schools. I didn't have enough power uh, when I was batting to be able to, uh, that you needed to play at the Division One type level. So it was Division Two schools like Montevallo and UAH were the two that I was predominantly looking at. As you were in high school, what were you thinking career-wise? What were you planning to do? Yeah, so my my trajectory was I always thought I wanted to to be a doctor. Um, that never really changed from the time I was younger all the way through through high school. It was to go get a degree, get into medical school, uh, and really to be more even specific, I thought I really wanted to be because of my sports background was to be a doctor of sports medicine. So, you know, to work with athletes and individuals who had had issues in, in their playing career and help them return to some sort of active uh, lifestyle. So when we rewind about 20 years ago, you're an 18 year old on the farm helping your dad out. It's a day that life kind of changed for you. 
you're helping them move a bulldozer in 1999. Take me through what was going on early in that day, because it just wasn't a normal day for you. Yeah, it um, definitely a day that, that changed my life, changed a lot of different things, I think uh, ultimately led to who I am today as a person and, and define my character further. I just graduated high school, felt like I had the, the world before me, you know, opportunities to play college baseball. And uh, that summer it helped my dad all summer. Uh, it was no different. It was a Friday afternoon, July, it was 98 degrees outside. And that morning we actually got into an argument, just like a lot of 18 year olds will do with their dads at the time. And to the point where, you know, I'm sure we were yelling at each other or I was yelling at him probably, which is why he sent me home for the day. He said, you know, just, just get out of here, man. So in typical 18 year old fashion, right? I'm like, that's fine. Now I don't have to work out in this heat all day. And, um, you know, I had a date that afternoon anyway, at like 530. I'm like, fine, I'll home, play the PlayStation. Life is good, you know? So, um, but in typical dad fashion, my dad calls me up later that afternoon and says, Hey, uh, I need you to come help me make a bulldozer. So that I think just elicited, you know, the anger that I had from earlier in the day, because we had, we were already mad at each other and I thought I was off the hook. And then he calls me back up right before my date. And obviously I'm thinking I'm going to be late. And, uh, sure enough, I was late. <laughs> this wasn't any small bulldozer at all. Um, 75 tons, 150 thousand pounds worth of steel what did you have to do what was the goal of moving the dozer the job that we were moving to was such a large job that that's why he chose that piece of equipment to move there and so the blade on this thing was actually 16 feet wide so if you can imagine those mobile home trailers that you see on the road driving down wide it's it's the blade itself is that big hmm. and uh even when you move something that weighs 150,000 pounds and it's not going anywhere. I mean, you, you, a car could T-bone that thing on the trailer and it would stay on there. But the law says you have to tie it down. So what we do is we take chains and we wrap the chains around certain aspects, parts of the dozer. And then we take what's called a boomer, which attaches to the chain here and here. And has just a simple lock arm, which is meant to take the slack out of the chain so that it cinches it down. And so that's what we essentially were doing on that day. We would just get the dozer up onto this this trailer that was pulled by a big Mack truck and we would have it tied down so that we could move the load securely. And at this point, it was you, your dad, and your mom um, yeah. taking it from one spot to another. How far apart were the two spots you were taking the bulldozer? Yeah, it was about 30 minutes. So, you know, we started this conversation with rural Alabama. Uh, I feel like I my home was in rural Alabama, but where we went, it was really out there. <laughs> uh, there was really no... Uh, not a lot of things. There wasn't like there was going to be a gas station on every corner or a Walgreens or a CVS at that time. So it was pretty far out in, in the boonies, as they would say. So you went to drop it off. Uh, the gate was supposed to be open to this business. It wasn't. So at that point, your dad made the decision, all right, we're just going to unload it here. And then who you're dropping it off for can do the rest of it the next day because it's already late on a Friday. Everybody's going home for the weekend. And that's when things really really turned. Yeah. It, um, so what happened next was, um, my dad literally just pulled onto the side of the road. We really had no alternative where he left half of the truck and trailer straddling on the, in the middle of the road and the other half straddling on the side of in the dirt and the grass. 
And my dad and I had a routine and it's something, this is something I'd done a million times. My dad would go and get the, the Mack truck and the trailer ready to lower to the ground and pull the truck away where I could go and undo the chains and the boomers that tied it down. And then I would jump up onto the dozer and get on and unload back the dozer off. So we had a pretty good system, I guess you could say. So we're efficient. And on that day, uh, this particular dozer has what's called a ripper on the back, um, rips into the ground to rip up the rock. And when it's elevated, it's about 14 feet from the top of the ripper to the trailer. And so we had this long chain that was strung down just like at this angle. And so immediately I went to that, that chain because it was on the side that was in the road. I felt like I should get that, that done first, right? In case there was a car coming, even in the we were out in rural Alabama. So I went and went to pull on the handle of that boomer. And what would typically happen is when you pull on it up, it will kick. Mm -hmm. And on that day I went and I pulled with both my hands and it didn't budge. So when that happens, um, I took a, a round metal pipe for leverage and simply slid it onto the end of that boomer handle. And that's when I made a fatal mistake. Um, instead of standing here and pushing towards you as I'm doing there, I stood here and pulled towards me. And the torque of that 150,000 pounds and that moment arm on that chain and all of those things you learn in engineering school, all of that momentum just went through my uh, throat. So that pipe kicked and that pipe hit me bluntly across my throat. And so it was definitely a moment of, a moment of panic. Uh, I remember telling myself to, to breathe and realized I couldn't. And then I remember telling myself to talk and I realized I couldn't. And um, it was at that moment that my mom being there ultimately saved my life. She was able to see that I had been hit and, and get to me very quickly. But it was that moment of, I don't know if I'm about to live or, or, or if this may be it. At this point, you are several hours away from Birmingham where you ultimately would be brought and you're really nowhere near any hospital. They couldn't fly you because it would take you too long. So the trip to Birmingham was kind of unique in the ambulance and basically having free reign uh, being brought from Northwest Alabama down to here. Yeah, it was a very humbling experience. Um, you know, once once I had the, the accident and they, I was able to get stabilized and get enough oxygen where I, I wasn't going to, to die. Um, in order, obviously they, they said, you know, you've got to have emergency surgery basically. And it was really a humbling experience where uh, my mom rode in the ambulance and she can recount the story as, you know, 85 miles per hour, 95, 105. And as she would, approach an intersection, she would notice lights going everywhere and notice that all the cars were stopped and out of the way. And so law enforcement had literally in, created a rolling roadblock to allow that ambulance to really just never slow down uh, as they transported me from North Alabama down to Birmingham for emergency surgery. Again, because at that time, right, there, this is 1999, there weren't helicopters. UAB didn't have a helicopter, it had a jet. Uh, so their, their policy kind of prevented us from, from leveraging that. So the only way was to get there via ambulance. And so to see the, the law enforcement community, which today is obviously under such scrutiny, 
come together to support an individual like myself um, to help me get to somewhere so that I could uh, potentially live. How scared were you? You know, I, I, it's it's one of those things. I guess you never know how you're going to respond or react in, in a certain situation. I do remember distinctly telling my mom, it's okay. It's okay. You know, in my mind, I'm telling her, it's okay if I go. All I can do, obviously, is mouth to her that mm-hmm. okay. I think I would have been okay if it would have had, if I would have, if I would not have made it. But it was definitely scary. I think not even that, more so the what does this mean for from here on and for the rest of my life? What is the ultimate impact? And the un, not being able to know at that point, I think was probably the scariest part. The doctors work diligently to get you back so you can breathe better once you're at UAB hospital. But you were told you might not be able to talk. That had to have been just a bombshell at that point because, I mean, here you are, an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, talking is your life. Yeah. As you can tell, I, I like to talk to people. And it was. It, it literally, I can, I can look back on just about anything, Greg, that happens in my life today, no matter how big or small. And I can always reflect back to that moment and that feeling of that doctor looking me in the eye and saying, there's an 80% chance that you will never talk again. And that feeling of, like I said, that, that being scared of not knowing what the issue was going to be and what the outcome might be. And now realizing that it may be that I never am able to talk. I, I still, to this day, 20 years later, struggle with putting into words how I felt and how that made me feel at that time and for the months, weeks and days and months that would follow. It was a long path. Um, The first surgery happened, you weren't able to talk, and it was a while later when you kind of said to yourself, you know what, I have this goal, I want to talk again. How long was it and what did you go through to get from not being able to talk to uttering those first words again in your living room with your family? Yeah, so the the immediate surgery was to provide me a tracheotomy so I could breathe and to cut my voice box open and wire my voice box back together, which had been completely severed. And my left vocal cord was left, it was left severed. And so essentially at that point, the doctors were, if there's nothing there, there's nothing we can do to create something that's not there. So that was gonna be the only surgery. If something ever came or happened where I was able to talk again, then they could start having additional procedures performed that could help me. And so literally to your question, there it was about a three month period where I would try to talk to you, not even a, a faintest of whisper it was silent and that was that was really difficult uh at that point um it was one of those things where for for three months again not knowing you're you're at that point you're starting to come to grips that maybe what the doctor said that's my reality i'm 18 years old i am never going to be able to talk again your family starts looking at sign language classes you know, doing things that can start to optimize what your new life is is going to be like. 
Um, but basically what I would do is every day is I would wake up and I would try to talk. Even though nothing came out, I would still try. Um, and then obviously a, a lot of rest and a lot of relaxation. Yeah. <laughs> as much as you can. Who was with you when you said those first words again? Oh man, I'll never forget that day. Um, the people who mean the most to me, right? My parents, my mom and my dad who were there during the accident and we were at their house and I remember sitting there and on the floor and next to my mom and my dad, my sister was there uh, and her husband's my brother-in-law. And it was just one of those things where we're sitting around and there's conversation happening obviously and something would normally happen and I guess they got to picking at me. I don't even remember what they were saying, but normally I would just kind of quip back at them or, and, and on that day I, I tried to say something and I literally, literally heard like the faintest of something from my voice. I don't even think they heard it, but I know the look on my face and I know they saw the look on my face. And I remember getting up and running out of the room uh, to grab my board where I could come back and write to them what had just happened. Cause they knew something had happened. They just didn't know what it was. Uh, and I was able to share with them that I heard, I heard something. At that point, you went back for more surgeries and little by little, you were able to get your voice back. What was that process like? That was a lot of hard work and a lot of frustration. And, um, you know, it's just not something that is, we all take for granted, right? We just know how to talk. Uh, but when that goes away and you have to reteach yourself how to do that and how to breathe properly so that your vocal cords, you know, they flap properly so that you get the proper uh, response that you want from them. But my voice wasn't great. You know, I went back and I had a second surgery and it's what I would call, I had a, a raspy whisper. So very, very low, very, very low. It's going to be hard for you to probably hear that on here, but it, you would literally need to be in a room within two feet of me to hear the whisper that was my voice at the time, but I had something right again of that 80% chance to never talk. I had something. And so that's when obviously a lot of work on speech therapy to, to, to learn how to talk again, to learn how to, to sit up properly. See, I still don't do it right. 20 years later to sit up properly, to get air, to articulate your voice at the right spot where it's the strongest and move up and down, uh, and it would be frustrating and you would you would try something and you would try it over and over and over again. I always refer to it as like, it's like Michael Jordan. For those who ever grew up watching him, I had the pleasure of being able to do that. For the younger generation, maybe it was a Kobe Bryant, right? Where that fade, they both had that fadeaway jumper and it was just so deadly, but they had practiced it so many times. It didn't matter if it were game seven of the NBA finals. It didn't matter if it were the first game of the NBA season or the preseason that shot felt the same every time, right? And chances of it going in were so high. That's what we would do with my voice, is we would find that spot right there where no matter the situation, I could go there and get the most out of it. Where did you get the determination to really fight through all of this and get the courage to push yourself to get back to where you wanted to be? Oh man, uh, a lot of faith. Um, my, I, we, are, we are a family of faith and belief. Um, and, and that was 
that was certainly a, a strong call. Um, it was it was a realization and, a, and an opportunity that this is a story that others might want to hear and need to hear, and I want to be able to share it. That it might have an impact on their life or something that they're going with through or dealing with. And I need to work to be able to show what it takes to do that, the mental toll and the physical toll and that you can be completely derailed from what you thought your path was going to be in life to what it is now because of this. And how do you navigate that? And how do you, how do you overcome that? And so a lot of those things combined of being given the opportunity again, I truly believe I was given another opportunity to, um, to talk and to share my story and to um, be an encouragement uh, to others who may need it. You mentioned the path changing course. Originally, let's remember Montevallo, UAH, you were going to play baseball, but yet you ended up at UAB. What drew you at that point away from where you were planning to go and landing at University of Alabama at Birmingham? Yeah, so there, at that time, it was definitely a couple of things. The first was, as I mentioned, I wanted to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. And at, early on, it was like, oh, I'll just go get a biology degree and then get to med school. And I got to thinking, you know, man, if that, if I, for some reason, don't get into med school or something else crazy happens, I, what am I going to do with a biology degree? So um, at the same time, I'm going to all of these visits with these doctors at the Kirkland Clinic. And, you know, they're sticking these devices down my nose and down my throat. And we're watching these amazing images of my vocal cords working as we do these things on these monitors. I'm like, GE Healthcare, okay, Stryker. I'm, looking, I'm seeing these names and start to, like, just investigate. Who are these companies? What do they do? They're providing this cool stuff that's really amazing. And so I started just doing my research of, and that's, that's essentially when I found biomedical engineering. I'm like, man, okay, this could be a way to separate myself maybe when it comes into getting into med school. I could have a biomedical engineering degree and I'm going to med school and then maybe I could do research and things when I'm done. And it's one of those things where it literally was just seeing and being exposed to that. And as I start researching, well, who has biomedical engineering and where can I go to get that? And so I go back into my house and I pull out all of those packets from, from those colleges that have been sent that I'd probably set to the side because I was like, I'm playing baseball, man. I don't care if I've got a, you know, a 4-0 and I'm third in my academic class. I don't care. I'm playing baseball. So I go back to all those things and I start looking and I start flipping through them and I start looking at their, their course curriculum. And that's literally when I saw UAB, which obviously I'm now uh, familiar with because of my procedures and things that were done there. And I see all of a sudden, wait, they got biomedical engineering. It's like, man, this is a no brainer. So, uh, took that, took that leap and said, okay, I'm not going to pursue the baseball aspect. I'm going to double down on my academics and, and go after biomedical engineering. How long of a process was it from the accident to where you would say is your new 100%? It was, uh, at least a year. The, the four procedures that I ultimately had cumulative was a, was a year in total by the time I had the fourth and final procedure. You've gone from Birmingham 
to Gainesville. Now you're up in Durham, North Carolina, working as the Director of Global Marketing of Amniotics and AHT Strategy at BioVintus. What exactly are you doing? Yeah, so uh, I'm that guy who took that biomedical engineering degree now and went to the dark side, as they say, and I, I market the products. My mom still doesn't understand that. She's like, wait, you, you have a bachelor's and a master's in biomedical engineering and you don't do engineering. And I, I said, well, you know, mother, I, I think that I, I use my engineering background more now because what I do is I take a really complex something and the science and everything that goes into it and I'm able to pull out of that something very simple and clean that a surgeon or a nurse or a supply chain professional or administrator at a hospital can understand in a way that says, wait, that's value. He's providing us value. And so, um, yeah, I, I took my biomedical engineering degree and I started in R&D and then went back and got an MBA and then ultimately transitioned to marketing. So what I do now is I'm responsible for developing a very unique program within our organization. It is amniotic tissue. So it comes from planned cesarean births and they take the placenta and then we take a portion of that tissue and we process it. And then we are taking that product and injecting it into the knee joint to uh, help with osteoarthritis. And so it's a very uh, rigorous pathway. The FDA says by doing that, you are classified as a drug. So we're taking that product through phase one, two, and three clinical trials as we speak. So I'm leading the commercialization aspects of that program. You've been there since October 2015. Where do you go from here? What do you have in the cards for Stephen Moore? My career goals are to, uh, to work into executive management uh, and leadership type of roles. So I would like to stay in medical device and do that, uh, ultimately working maybe to the VP or the, the executive ranks, um, but doing it in a company that um, values their people, values the helping others, and allows me the opportunity to, to do what I do best every day and to mentor people and help them get better as people first and then professionals. And if I'm able to do that, it may be here at BioVentus the rest of my career, right? Or there may be a, a, an opportunity I can't turn on in the future, obviously, so, so hard to say, but, but ultimately would like to continue working in the medical device arena, working into to marketing and, and, and executive type management. Would you change anything that happened 20 years ago? Not about the accident. I spent a lot of time reflecting on that. And I'm sure there are times where I've reflected on that and thought that I have regrets and I would have done this different. Um, I alluded to this earlier, right? I think that day helped shape me as a person. It further refined my character and my resilience and the things that ultimately I rely on every day. And I, I don't know that I could see myself in certain situations today being successful if I hadn't gone through that. So no, I wouldn't change anything.
That's Stephen Moore, a two-time graduate of the UAB School of Engineering, where he earned his bachelor's degree in 2005 and master's degree in 2006, both in biomedical engineering. Stephen's story led him to UAB, first as a patient and then student. He's been around the university for more than two decades and has a good idea of what it means to be a blazer. What it means to be a blazer is someone that is fearless and resilient in the face of going after what they want and believe in. And that may require blazing a new trail. It may require, you know, challenging the status quo or challenging those that, you know, have always said, this is, this, this is the way we do it and this is how it works. Um, not being afraid to do that. And I think my life experience is, is fitting because I believe that experience in my life, I feel like there were a lot of, a lot of things that, that reflect that and the opportunity to do so. Please share your thoughts on the podcast by leaving a review wherever you listen in. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can also tune in online at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold. Know someone who has a story we should share? Let me know. Email me at greenandtold at uab.edu. And don't forget to follow us on social media. We can be found at alumni on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. And until next time, go Blazers.